Good evening, I'm Martin Bang, and here are the titillating tales of today. Supreme Court says shots for everyone. Metropolitan Museum unveils art galore in the Big Apple. And Tamil Tigers, aerial assault thwarted by sky-high defense. Plus, don't miss our exclusive on the world's first underwater bakery, where the bread is always soggy and the fish have never been happier. Stay with us for the news that tickles your curiosity and scratches your brain. News Bang. Taking the pulse of truth and taking no prisoners. 1905. On this day in 1905, the Supreme Court of the United States made a ruling that would shake the very foundations of liberty itself. In Jacobson v. Massachusetts, it was decided that states could enforce compulsory vaccination laws, effectively saying, you can't catch our diseases unless we say so. The decision affirmed that individual liberty is about as absolute as non-alcoholic gin and can be trampled on by state police at any moment. Vaccination policies, which are like health insurance for your immune system, were introduced to stop contagious diseases spreading faster than nudes at a celebrity party. State and local governments took up the mantle with glee. Soon enough, refusing a jab meant you'd be hunted down like one of those bloody cows with TB. One eyewitness to history, Mildred Spitton from Smallpoxville said, I remember it well, there was panic in the streets, people running around screaming, we don't want no stinking needles, but they got them all right. It was a dark day for personal freedom, but a great leap forward for heard, immunity is standis and ban, sadies and kandstient band for. And Dari Seen, 1872. 1872, and New York City was a hive of activity. The opening of the Metropolitan Museum of Art attracted more people than a free bread giveaway in famine-stricken Ireland. Boasting two million works of art, it became the largest collection since the Vatican's Sistine Nudes. The museum's grand opening saw luminaries from far and wide flock to its hallowed halls. Our reporter on the scene, Biff Higgins, witnessed firsthand the mania. It was bedlam out there. I haven't seen so many well-to-do people elbowing each other for Monet since last Tuesday at Sotheby's. Inside, patrons marvelled at masterpieces by da Vinci, Rembrandt, and even some bloke called Van Gogh who cut his ear off. No accounting for taste these days. One visitor gushed, I came for the nudes but stayed for the free cheese sticks. As night fell on this momentous occasion, curators locked up their newest acquisition, an Egyptian mummy named Clive, hoping he wouldn't come to life and cause havoc like last time. 2009. This just in. The Tamil Tigers, not to be confused with the Siberian weasels or Bengal badgers, have attempted a brazen attack on Colombo, Sri Lanka. Two aircraft laden with C-4 explosives were shot down before reaching their targets, believed to be a tropical spa resort and an elephant sanctuary. Eyewitnesses describe the scene as absolute chaos as tourists fled for their lives and elephants stampeded into the Indian Ocean. One plane did manage to hit a government building, killing two people who had only just started working there on Monday. Officials are calling it unfortunate, but insist that they hadn't yet learned where the stationary cupboard was anyway. The pilots of these kamikaze crafts were believed to be fans of September 111th action movies and wanted to recreate its success, minus all the actual research or coherent plotline. 
Colombo itself is reeling from this near miss. Once known as a haven for backpackers and those looking for an affordable hip replacement, it now joins other holiday hotspots like Beirut and Baghdad in being quite risky. Tourism Minister Baz Luhrmann said, We're issuing parachutes with every room key. As for those affected by today's events, well, tough tusk. News Bang, the daily dose of reality served with a slice of humour. Here's Shakanaka Giles with the weather. Listen carefully, as it might just inspire you to reconsider your choice of footwear for tomorrow. Ah, tomorrow's weather, starting in the southeast, where it'll be a bit like a wet dog shaking itself dry. Expect a drizzle that'll leave you feeling as if you've been licked by a rather soggy Labrador. Moving on to the Midlands, where the wind will be blowing like a politician's promises. It'll be a bit nippy, so make sure to wrap up like a mummy preparing for a chilly night in the tomb. In the north, it'll be a bit of a snowy spectacle, as if Mother Nature's decided to have a go at frosting a giant cake. Keep those snow shovels handy, folks. And finally, in the west, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag. Rain, sun and wind, all taking turns to make an appearance. It's like a game of weather musical chairs. In summary then, a soggy dog, political winds, a frosted cake, and a game of weather musical chairs, and that's all the weather. Good day to you. 1988. As the world teetered on the brink of 1988, a vote in the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast set off a chain reaction that would engulf the region in conflict for years to come. The decision to secede from Azerbaijan and align with Armenia sparked the First Nagorno-Karabakh War, an ethnic and territorial conflagration that drew support from Turkey. The battle lines were drawn, and the region plunged into chaos, as Armenians and Azerbaijanis clashed in a brutal struggle that would last six long years. And now, to shed light on this ongoing conflict, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable. My war, your war, our war, the whole world is holding its breath as I stand on the edge of this yawning abyss. A shimmering veil of heat haze obscures my view into the heart of darkness where hell has broken loose and heaven turned its back. In my hand, a microphone with a will to record the sound of madness and destruction in order that you may know what it's like to be here in this place at this time on this fateful day. As far as the eye can see, a battlefield that stinks like a putrefying corpse drenched in napalm bile. This is ground zero for humankind's bloodiest fight against itself since time began tickling downwards towards doomsday midnight. Listen closely as I tell you about one tiny part of it. 
A tanker truck lies upended by an unexploded mine with flaming fuel streaming from ruptured seams and pooling around charred bodies writhing in agony while others grope through oily smoke screaming unintelligible curses and incantations to gods long dead or indifferent but now somehow possibly real again because who else could explain all this carnage? Nearby, three children sit huddled together, weeping silently under what remains of their home, having seen their parents killed moments before while running for cover during yet another bombardment from those damnable guns whose very existence should be an affront to decency but instead are worshipped like deities by fanatics on both sides, claiming divine righteousness for their murderous causes, which they say must prevail even if it means annihilation for us all. Welcome to Armageddon, folks. Or maybe not. Depends how lucky we feel today, doesn't it? Overblown hyperbole aside, though, let me assure you that there is nothing glamorous or romantic about warfare. Only pain, suffering and death await those foolish enough to think otherwise. Brian Bastable signing off from somewhere deep inside the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast. In a tragic turn of events, the year 2009 bore witness to a heinous attempt by the Tamil Tigers to replicate the infamous September 11 attacks on Colombo, Sri Lanka. Utilizing two aircraft laden with C-4 explosives, their mission was thwarted when both planes were shot down prior to reaching their intended targets. Regrettably, one aircraft managed to strike a government building resulting in the tragic loss of two innocent lives. Colombo, the capital and largest city of Sri Lanka, revered for its financial centre and tourist attractions, was left grappling with the aftermath of this audacious assault. Now we turn to Ken Shit for further insights on this developing story. Greetings, degenerates! Let's travel back to the hellish year of 2009, when the world was still reeling from the September 11 attacks, and a twisted group of Tamil Tigers decided to take a giant dump on the memory of those innocent souls. These bastards attempted suicide attacks on Colombo, Sri Lanka using two aircraft loaded with C-4 explosives trying to mimic the devastation of 911, but they were about as successful as a blind man trying to play the piano. The planes were shot down before they could reach their targets, and only one managed to strike a government building, killing two people. Colombo, the capital and largest city of Sri Lanka, is known for its financial centre and tourist attractions. It's a place where people should be able to go about their lives without the threat of madmen trying to recreate history. But these Tamil tigers didn't give a flying fuck about that. These motherfuckers were like a bunch of psychopathic toddlers playing with matches and gasoline, not caring who they hurt in the process. They were a cancer on society, and it's a damn shame it took so long for someone to cut them out. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how dark things get, there will always be light shining through. And for the Tamil Tigers, that light came in the form of a hail of bullets, bringing an end to their twisted game of make-believe. 1905 in a landmark decision that has set the stage for a new era of public health governance, the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled in favour of compulsory vaccination laws. The ruling, which affirms that individual liberty is not an absolute construct, 
has placed states in the driver's seat of enforcing vaccination policies. This decision comes as a response to the Jacobson v. Massachusetts case, which sought to establish the boundaries between personal freedoms and state-sanctioned health policies. As we tread on this uncharted terrain, one question remains. Will this be a turning point in our collective battle against infectious diseases? And on this historic day, we turn to Melody Wintergreen for further insights into the implications of this groundbreaking ruling. Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the air is thick with tension and the scent of smallpox vaccine. The year is 1905, and the Supreme Court has just delivered a shot in the arm to public health policy with its ruling in Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Henning Jacobson, a rebel with a cause but without a case, stands outside the courthouse, his face as poxed with anger as with lesions. I won't be poked or prodded by any man, he declares, not for all the tea in China or all the smallpox in Massachusetts. But Justice John Marshall Harlan sees it differently. He's prescribed a dose of judicial jargon that's more binding than a bandage and twice as hard to get off. The liberty secured by the Constitution, he states, does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. So it seems individual freedom has met its match in the syringe of state sovereignty. And as Henning Jacobson rolls up his sleeve for liberty, this is one jab that will leave more than just a sore arm. It's inoculating an entire nation with a precedent for public health. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, at the epicenter of America's vaccination vexation. Newsbang, the unvarnished truth brought to you by the unvarnished. Here to elucidate on the historical dance of Earth's elements, is our resident environmental correspondent, Penelope Winchime. Ah, the winds of time rustle the leaves of history. And today we find ourselves fluttering back to 2010. In Madeira, Portugal, Mother Nature unleashed her watery wrath, turning streets into rivers and hillsides into torrents of mud. 51 souls were swept away in this deluge, while 600 were left without a nest to call home. Madeira, that jewel in the ocean's crown with over a quarter million heartbeats pulsing through its veins, was left gasping for breath under the sodden embrace of the skies. And if we cast our gaze further back to 1943 in Michoacan's fertile belly, where corn once swayed like a sea of green dancers, a fissure erupted. Paracutin was born a syndicone volcano that sprouted from the earth as if it were a fiery beanstalk reaching for the heavens. This geological infant grew before the astonished eyes of farmers, who perhaps wondered if they'd sown seeds of fire rather than maize. Michoacan's capital, Morelia watched from afar as Paracutin etched its name into volcanic lore, becoming an overnight sensation in the world of smoke and ash. Thus we see how our planet pirouettes on the stage of time, sometimes with a tempestuous twirl, other times with a volcanic boo. I'm Penelope Winchime, your scribe of Earth's sonnets and ballads. 
1965. Calamity. Prenderville takes us on a journey to 1965, when British innovation and ingenuity in space exploration made its mark with the Ranger 8 mission. Welcome back to Newsbank, where we're celebrating the anniversaries of Britain's most significant contributions to space exploration. Today, we're zooming in on the moon landing, but not as you know it. Let's take a trip back to 1965, when Ranger 8 made its lunar descent. Now imagine this. It's the height of the Cold War, and the space race is on. The Soviets are winning, but not for long. Our British boffins have been beavering away in their sheds, and they've come up with a corker. They've built a spacecraft, Ranger 8, complete with six cameras and a crash site in Mare Tranquilitatis. Uh, the mission? To transmit over 7,000 photographs of the moon before crashing as planned. Why? Because British innovation doesn't do things by halves. These images were used for scientific study and to select landing sites for Apollo missions. Talk about killing two birds with one stone. But here's where it gets interesting. The cameras were designed by none other than Sir Clive Sinclair himself. Yes, that's right. The man who brought us the ZX Spectrum and the C5 is also responsible for documenting the moon's surface. And if that wasn't enough, he even included a pop-up vanity mirror for astronauts to check their makeup before stepping out onto the lunar landscape. So, let's raise a glass to Ranger 8 and our British boffins who made it all possible. Without them, we wouldn't have had those iconic images of Neil Armstrong taking his first steps on another celestial body. And let's not forget, it was all made possible by British innovation. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, a dose of the truth served daily. 13. 1943. In a time when the world was engulfed in chaos, renowned artist Norman Rockwell unveiled his Four Freedoms series, an artistic manifestation of President Franklin Roosevelt's visionary principles. These paintings, illustrating freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, were published in the Saturday Evening Post. Their impact was profound and far-reaching. They became symbols of hope and unity, transcending the boundaries of art to become powerful tools for raising funds for war bonds. And now, to delve deeper into the story behind these iconic works and their creator, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my culture vultures. It's your one and only Smithsonian Moss, coming at you with a blast from the past that's so old school it's practically prehistoric. We're dialing it back to 1943 when the world was black, white, and Rosie the Riveter red all over. So, gather round, because I'm about to spill the tea on Norman Rockwell's Four Freedoms paintings. That's right. The man who made Thanksgiving look like an all-you-can-eat buffet at Grandma's house turned his brush to something a little more... patriotic. Rockwell was like, Hey, I've got an idea. Let's paint the American dream. And not just any dream, but President Franklin D. Wheely, Roosevelt's Four Freedoms. You know, the ones he pulled out of his hat during a speech like a rabbit in 1941. 
First up, we've got freedom of speech, where some Joe Schmo is standing up in a town meeting like he's about to drop the hottest mixtape of 1943. Then there's freedom of worship with all these folks praying like they just heard the liquor rationing news. But wait, there's more. Freedom from want, a.k.a. the Thanksgiving feast that made every wartime meal look like a sad can of spam. And lastly, freedom from fear, where two kiddos are tucked in bed, safe from the boogeyman, or, you know, the entire Axis powers. And get this, Rockwell's paintings went viral before going viral was even a thing. They toured the country faster than a traveling circus, raising cold, hard cash for war bonds like they were selling out Broadway shows. So let's raise our imaginary war bonds and toast to Norman Rockwell, the man who painted America like a Rockwellian utopia, and FDR, the prez who could sell freedom like a snake oil salesman at a county fair. And that's a wrap on this throwback culture report. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more cheeky takes on everything from art to zoot suits. Smithsonian Moss, out. Newsbang, the voice of reason speaking in tongues of truth. 1970. Today we take you back to 1970, where a new temple emerged in Thailand, aiming to adapt traditional Buddhist values in modern society. Wat Phra has since grown to become one of the largest temples in the country, renowned for its Dhammakaya meditation tradition. Despite controversies and government crackdowns, it remains a leading force in Thai Buddhism. To delve deeper into this spiritual sanctuary, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, fine people. Your humble pastor, Kevin Monstrance here, back once more like a bad rash to regale you with tales of faith and folly. Now, I must say, this Dhammakaya business in Thailand has me feeling a mite conflicted. On one hand, any temple spreading Buddhist values of compassion and mindfulness seems a positive thing. <laughs> but by all accounts, this Wat Phra Dhammakaya has courted its fair share of controversy over the years. Accusations of commercialization, cultish behavior, heretical teachings. My word, it's a veritable tempest in a Thai teapot. <laughs> Reminds me of a situation back home, in my own parish some years ago. Our local temple, St. Swithin's, had something of an internal schism erupt between the traditionalists and the modernists. Quite the dramatic affair. On the traditionalist side, you had Father Tremaine Higginbottom, stuffier than a taxidermid badger, that one. And leading the charge for the hip and with it camp was one Father Groovy Gary. Yes, he actually asked us to call him that. Dear Lord. <laughs> well, things came to a head when Groovy Gary wanted to replace the choir's hymnals with lyric sheets for something called praise pop. Apparently Bible verses set to guitar riffs and synth beats. This outraged old man Higginbottom, who saw it as the end of civilization. So one Saturday night, he broke into the temple and stole all the electric guitars and drums that Groovy G had brought in. And that wasn't all. He then dumped them on the front steps of the local mosque. <laughs> when Groovy Gary arrived the next morning to set up for his rockin' praise service, he found the instruments missing. And who should ring the temple at that very moment but the imam from down the street, asking why they'd gifted him musical equipment overnight? Well, Gary was furious, of course and a blazing row with Higginbottom ensued right there in the nave. 
I myself witnessed punches thrown amidst all the stained glass. In the end, the bishop had to intervene and ban all contemporary creative worship expressions from the parish. Groovy Gary soon left for more progressive pastures. As for Higginbottom, he got to keep things traditional, but was sentenced to 100 Hail Marys, on his knees, on a hard stone floor. <laughs> I suppose the moral is, balance in all things is best, whether in Buddhism or Christianity. Extremes on either end rarely lead to harmony. But a bit of lively debate now and then can keep things from getting too dull, eh? Blessings to you all. <laughs> And now, a final roundup of tomorrow's newspaper front pages. The Telegraph? Confederates claim Southwest in Valverde victory. There's a reenactment there of the charge. The Guardian? Malcolm X slain mid speech. They've a silhouette there of a man speaking. The Scotsman? King James I? Royal murder in Perth? There's a sketch there of a crown with a dagger. And that's it. Good night and may your God go with you. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>